Welcome everyone to episode 169 of the Metabolist 2 podcast, which features David and Ben and tonight. Tonight. The epic, the first epic arc in the Tom Baker era, the key to time. The key to time. Season 16. 16. Amazing to think that it's, that's just season 16. Mm-hmm. Um, considering what we what are we up to now with New Who season... 13, I think, is what they're going to film. Yeah, 13. That's crazy mm-hmm. to me. So the Key to Time series ran from September of 1978 through February 1979. 1979, yeah. When did you first see it in the States? I saw it in 82, I think. But it wasn't until the 83, uh, 1983 showing that I think I really latched onto it because the rebos operation was in the middle of January at the time. And oh, so very it, appropriate. It resonated in Minnesota in the very Minnesota-like. frozen tundra of Minnesota. Yeah, I, I'll have to say I did not care for this season at all when it was first broadcast. Mm, I loved it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have no doubt that that was the case. Now, I I felt it was an improvement on the previous season in a few ways. At least, you know, I've been very disappointed in the invasion of time. Mm -hmm. And I think still to this day, actually, I feel that some of the stories kind of lean into the key. Mm -hmm. And some of the stories are like, I don't know. Yeah, there's a key somewhere. Yeah. And I think at the time... We was promised this is going to be the oh, search for the key to time. Ooh, excitement. Mm-hmm. I think as a, what it was like again, you know, 12, 11, 12 year old at that mm-hmm. point, I was looking for something that would be more obviously each block of four episodes, they would be rigorously searching for the key to time. Mm. So I was kind of disappointed in that way. And I, you know, I obviously I understand now that it's just a thing. It's not really an arc of any kind. These are just a bunch of stories. And at the end of each, at the end of the fourth episode, oh, yes, that's the key to time that we mm-hmm. were looking for. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was like, well, why aren't they looking for the key to time more? Right. <laughs> anyway, <so. laughs> okay. Well, I, I also saw it as a 12-year-old, and I just thought this was the bee's knees. I thought this was a great drama throughout, especially the middle four stories from Pirate Planet through Power of Kroll. I just couldn't get enough of them. Wow. Uh, it was a little bit of a slow start on Rebos Operation, but the introduction of the White Guardian, the whole quest, the new companion, Ramana, just all captured my imagination. And the tying in factor of having this, uh, looking for the segments of the key to time, I thought was brilliant it gave the doctor a purpose there was they were they were doing something he was out you know they had the, tra- the tracer that romana brought it there was a tracer it, that's true it, it all kind of tied together i thought for me i thought this was this is i think where i really fell in love with the show actually really okay yeah. interesting right right because it was a vast improvement over season 15 obviously but it had departed from the horror more or less, and it seemed more sci-fi to me because you had parts three and four of the Stones and Blood, which took place in hyperspace. And I knew all about hyperspace because that's how right. the Millennium Falcon traveled. And then Androids of Tara, you had the sword battle, but they weren't 
fencing swords. They were electrified fencing swords, so they had a little zap to them, and so it reminded me of the lightsabers in Star Wars, even though they didn't glow. And right. And then I'm always a sucker for location filming, and then Power of Kroll had location in spades, and I really liked the marsh setting. It was just something never have seen before and in some ways i think my memory is probably playing tricks on me but it reminded me of like of dagobah or uh, oh true true and it was uh, and it was set on a moon isn't it it's it's a moon yeah very deliberately yeah Mm -hmm. in a kind of star wars sort of way oh and i love the battle in the pirate planet between the parrot the robot parrot and the robot dog that in the douglas adams pirate planet so that was pretty (laughs) intense and gripping and then for the season finale not only do you learn the doctor's name, <laughs> but it, it's true, true. It, this is a, a kid growing up in the early 1980s with Reagan and nuclear war, threats and nuclear war. The Armageddon Factor is all about living underground during this horrendous uh, nuclear war, nuclear exchange between these two planets. So that also I kind of latched on. Now, the story itself with the shadow meh, wasn't wasn't quite as good. But something really clicked for me with this season, especially mm. those middle four stories. Yeah. No, I mean, I think in retrospect, I mean, the stories are strong. I mean, the Armageddon factor aside, which is not a strong story. Mm-hmm. Everyone always says, well, like six parters always suffer from having six parts. Well, this one really does. Yeah. Because uh, it's not even, they don't even bother to try and split it into like a two parter and a four parter. You know, they don't have that kind of beat to it. But yeah, no, I mean, they, they, they are strong stories. I reacted badly to the kind of more comedic elements of Douglas Adams's script, you mm-hmm. know, Pirate Planet. Though I reacted well to the more comedic elements of The Stones of Blood. Um, mm-hmm. Though, again, I think I remember being disappointed that the stones weren't more horrible. I was so, so enthused and excited by the Hinchcliffe Holmes years mm-hmm. there was a sense of disappointment that people didn't get killed more horribly that's kind of what I was looking for um I remember also being a little bit disappointed by the guardians as a concept <laughs> again they didn't really seem to do anything no and uh, I uh, I think even then although I think I can probably articulate it better now is it seemed to me that having kind of dispatched the time lords as a thing right it's like, oh, hang on, we don't have any super beings now. Um, okay, let's just invent some more super mm-hmm. beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a black guardian, a white guardian, and right. And it's, it's it's exactly what Chibnall has done with the timeless children. That yeah, you, exactly, you, you, exactly. You've diminished the time lords in, to such a degree that you have to introduce this whole another thing group of super beings, and who knows, perhaps the white and black guardian are timeless children effectively maybe the timeless children are guardians of whatever so yeah and i think um because chibnall certainly seems to be latched onto the tom baker era and trying to explain things with like brain of morbius so why not explain that well actually the doctor is one of the guardians or one of from that race of people and right right well i guess i mean no and uh, carmel the end of the 80s was Mm -hmm. like okay Mm -hmm. this has gone too far the doctor's got to be something more now you know there's a there's a lore diminishing returns with like a stacking things more and more on top of each other i'll have to say also i responded a lot better to the white guardian who i thought was kind of cool looking 
Mm -hmm. um, and he has that cool kind of 1970s chair that he sits on. <laughs> um, like he's just about to play someone at a game of Mastermind. Yes. Um, Cyril Luckham. <laughs> exactly. The Black Guardian, really, I mean, even to this day, obviously everyone loves Valentine Dial for some reason. I think he's probably someone who was more important to people who were slightly older than me mm. as an actor, you know, the man in black and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, the fact that he had like a bird sticking <laughs> out his forehead. Yeah, but wasn't that Come until... I, my memory is probably cheating me, but I thought that wasn't until the Davison era that they stuck the crow on his head. But maybe, Really? Did, yeah, oh, I oh, thought he just had oh. a black Gallifreyan cap in the Key to Time series. But again, the memory cheats without going back and... Oh, looking okay because i thought that was in the excess of the um jnt era so he started out looking normal did he i think so let let me pull up a screen capture here yeah let's let's try and do when when does he first, he first appear in the armageddon factor yeah armageddon yeah. factor uh, i'm looking it up myself now so oh, my. at the end where the doctor decides it would be a shame if he couldn't tell the difference between black and white that's true Black Guardian, Armageddon. Yeah, you're right. He has the bird on his head. You're right. He just has a skull cap. Yeah. And he's all negative looking. Yeah, it's the excess True. from the JNT era that puts the bird on his head. Valentine Dial, I think, is masterful. And he has that incredible voice. He does have a good voice. He does have a good voice. Um, I beg your pardon. I'm wrong. <laughs> it just shows you the last time that I watched the Armageddon Factor. It was a very, very long time ago, if I will ever watch it again. Um, the other thing I can remember, certainly about Armageddon Factor, is getting very mixed up between the Black Guardian and the Skull. Oh, the Shadow. Yeah. The Shadow. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like, well, okay, which one of them is the evil one? Oh, they're both evil. They're both they both evil. seem to be quite evil. Mm -hmm. Like, which one is more eviler than the... Anyway, so... Well, one is. I, mean, I think I think we're agreed. The yeah, yeah. Uh, Armageddon fact is the weak. It's kind of a weak link. It right? is, and it's the Bristol Boys again. It's yeah. Baker and Martin, and there's two factors in Armageddon factor that are working against it. One is that they're trying to wrap up the Key to Time arc, and by that point in the series, giving it to the um, Bristol Boys probably wasn't the best idea. Great on ideas, but without a Terrence Sticks there to rein them in, and rather have like. <laughs> I don't know if Douglas Adams was doing the script editing at that point. I, th I think it was still Anthony Reed. Right. But without Terrence Sticks there to rein them in and make this pl doable, plausible to f yeah, doable to film, <laughs> it's very evident that you're starting to run out of money. Right. And it kind of goes out for whimper. And really, what carries it across, I think, is really on the shoulders of Tom Baker and his acting, especially in that last last bit when they're in the TARDIS and he's just going crazy, you know, pretending to be crazy with the power that the key to time that is a good bit. has yeah. and his eyes rolling back like a shark and towards Romana kind of freaking her out. I think that sells it. But then there's not enough story there. And the, the bit with Drax and really Lala Ward comes across as a wet noodle in in the story for me and it's yep, yep. really pretty disappointing that we lose the real Romana for Lala Ward next season because I didn't like Princess Astra that much in the story and it kind of goes out uh, damp squib ending for the key to time which really is not a bad story 
or bad story arc. There's some good stories in there. Give me Power Curl any day over any of the following works that Bob Holmes has done for Doctor Who, caves included. Yeah, I very much like the Rebus operation. Yeah. It's 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 really I mean, again, I I didn't care for it at the time. It's really grown on me. Did that one resonate with you more of as a sophisticated 12, 13-year-old? It's yeah, well, yeah. Um I mean, it felt too Star Trekky to me at the time. Hmm. Um, it wasn't spacey enough for mm-hmm, me, mm-hmm. but I mean, I, I very much enjoy it now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good, it's a good, and, um, it's, you know, obviously it's quite studio bound, but yes. the, um, in fact, it, it is studio bound, but the, uh, the acting is top notch. Yeah. Ian Cuthbertson is Garen and, uh, they have Paul Seed, who I believe went on to be a director. Yeah. He directed, um, yes, has cards. Uh-huh. Pretty sure. Anyway. Um, yeah. So that's that. Yeah, so you have also Unstop, the actor who plays Unstop, Nigel Plaskett. Right. And the double act that he has with the character Binroll, that's always harkens back to Galileo. That the, the, So there's these bits in there that Holmes just introduces, I think, mainly just to pad out the story. Right. So he adds all these world-building bits and what Bob Holmes can do in a throwaway line or a throwaway scene that really doesn't advance the plot, adds a whole much depth to it. But then as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, it doesn't work until you get much older. The story itself isn't exciting enough. Yeah, it's a little too sophisticated, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But the next one, yeah. Pirates, got the Mentiads. I think Douglas Adams' reputation carries the story in fan polls, fan wisdom, inflates it a little higher than it probably deserves to be. But you have Tom doing his angry acting with uh, What's It right. For with, yep. with the yep. planet against the Captain Bill Purchase. It has a really sci-fi twist to it with the queen, and who's actually the nurse of the captain, trying to regain her body. And the captain's trying to do all this to escape this old queen. And it's... It's it's kind of fun. It's a little bit of Peter Pan in there with Mr. Fibuli and... The polyphase, Avatron, or whatever the pirate says. It, it, so there's bits in it, but it's weird. It's because you have Douglas Adams in there, and you have the Mentiads, and some things don't work as well as others. It's, it's, there's a lot of ideas, like, frothing around. To me, still, it could have done with a little bit more shaping, mm-hmm. possibly. And it's very Douglas Adams-y. So watching it again, it's like, oh, yeah, this is these are all Douglas Adams things. You know, yeah. there's planets. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of... Silly space opera in many ways, mm-hmm. but you're know, very well done and very, you know, again, nicely acted. Plenty of stuff for Tom to do, which I think he enjoys. Mm-hmm. Some great model work, I think. With the bridge. With the bridge, yeah, which looks great. Uh, again, I think at the time, and I think even till today, I find the captain a little bit too silly. <laughs> really, he doesn't have the. Uh, I mean, he's not the villain one finds, really, but he doesn't really present himself effectively to me that well as a as a villain um one because he's so obviously like a you know a long john silver style pirate captain with a parrot right and also the you know the i'm a half a robot thing right doesn't really work because he just looks as though he's got like a robot costume on half his body Mm -hmm. which is fine because that's i'm not expecting him to be half a robot right right it's an over-the-top performance and it's a bit pantomime but it works a bit pantomime. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it's understatement. But it, it, I think it works well for the story. 
the disparate parts that Adams is trying to throw together with the Mentiads and they're getting all the psychic powers because of the vampiric nature of the pirate planet going and consuming all planets. And then you add in that level of peril, the next planet that they're trying to take over or they're trying to consume is the Earth, which later on it would be a, a Russell T. Davis type trick where you have to involve the Earth somehow. That kind of falls right. flat. But for me, as a kid, the battle between the parrot and the robot dog, K-9, that was, <laughs> that was the pinnacle. That was great. And this was right about the time that I was trying to finish up my uh, tinfoil and cardboard full-size replica of K-9. So it uh, really juiced me on uh, K-9 a lot. <laughs> Well, yeah. I, I, again, as, as as regular listeners will know, I I I never really cared. Mm-hmm. I certainly I didn't care for K nine mm-hmm. then. So it was like, ah, uh, robot parrot, robot dog. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, don't like either of them. So and this is didn't work for me hugely. It corresponded also to, uh, it corresponded also to the time I was heavily playing D anD D with my uh, buddies uh, in in ah. middle school. So this was the first Doctor Who, uh, Dungeons and Dragons crossover with the Time Dams we created spells that would be, you could freeze time, and that was inspired by uh, the time dams of the pirate captain. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, and also, I mean, I guess, as you said a few minutes ago, this is a quest. Yeah. There's a dungeon master, a white guardian, <laughs> who's sending our heroes on a mission yeah. to do a thing, mm-hmm. and they have to overcome various difficulties. So it's, it's, it is kind of D&D. Yeah, I think that's another, now that you call attention to it, I think it's probably another reason why I really resonated with me because it seemed right. familiar it's like well this is what i was doing on my evenings and weekends playing playing right. with friends doing D, and this captures that late 78 vibe or, and for me it had been early 80s vibe of playing D with my friends uh, interesting yeah huh yeah i was well, again as i said before i couldn't stand dungeons and dragons so um didn't really work for me so so you, w- w- would you have heard uh hitchhikers at this point I, I I have never gone back and looked where Hitchhikers was. I know Star Wars, the National Public Radio Star Wars, came out in 1981. So my guess is I would have heard Hitchhikers shortly thereafter because NPR was trying to find what they would be doing next. And so I think I heard in rapid succession Star Wars Radio, which was... Uh, 13 hours or 26 episodes long and then probably Hitchhikers 1 and 2 and then the BBC Lord of the Rings which kind of washed over me like waves of uh, great right. ra- great radio drama. So I probably had heard Hitchhikers by then because I certainly knew who Douglas Adams was. I vaguely recall. Right, but I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have kind of watched Pirate Planet, gone like, ah, oh, yes, that's that's Douglas Adams. I know him because of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. No, no, no. that whole early '80s time kind of is a jumble of memories for me. But I've always assumed that the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy universe and the and the Doctor Who universe, at least during the Graham Williams era, are are the, are one of the same. There is overlaps in there, and I could definitely see 
Tom's doctor bumping into Ford and Zaphod and Arthur. Right. Uh, right, of course. At, at, at Millieways or some other place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm. yeah, but no, it wasn't, ooh, this is Douglas Adams, the creator of Hitchhikers. And I'm not sure that was the case either for the first viewing public in the, in Britain, too, because I'm not sure. It was before. It was, yeah, yeah it, it was, was before Hitchhikers, yeah. Before Hitchhikers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, of course, unlike you, you know, this was never repeated. So, you know, when you said you, you watched it the first time and then you watched it the second yeah. time, that was a... Yeah. A luxury that sadly we do not have in the UK. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. boggles the mind because I think Australian fans and American fans had Tom Baker on endless loop in the 1980s. So fans of a certain age or vintage, as is myself from those two continents to those two countries, really have uh, imprinted on Tom Baker. And you guys just had him. The once, you know, one shot and maybe a few one, Christmas one repeats. Yeah. Yep. One and done. And then you're on to the next doctor. Yeah. Yeah. No. And again, the repeats were really, they were a dirty word. The BBC used to get rigorously lambasted by politicians and the listening and viewing public. If it dared to repeat anything, it was, it was, you know, we pay our license fee, make something new for us. Right. Don't show us something that we've already seen. We mm-hmm. don't want to see that. We've already seen that. We want something new. So, and that was the culture. So, again, again, you know, and of course, you know, um, I think that also, in some ways, feeds into the loss of a lot of Who from the 60s and early 70s, mm-hmm. because there, there no was piece. no, yeah, things didn't get repeated. And I think, actually, in some ways, it was also, you know, because of the unions and especially equity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in some ways, it was easier to make something new than it was to repeat something old. Yep. Anyway. Television has changed a lot since the 60s and 70s, and at least in Britain. I think in the U.S., obviously, Star Trek, which which was contemporary to the last part of the Patrick Troughton era, that was all made for syndication and for repeats. And yeah. Roddenberry yeah. was thinking that, you know, this was a franchise from the get-go so it's all filmed on film so you could get high def now and it's just a totally different product all in color etc but yeah no exactly the the next story uh stones of blood the following the D theme the ogre was the first monster from doctor who that i introduced (laughs) into dragons so (laughs) i know i know you thought the ogre were kind of maybe a disappointment but that ability to drain blood of the campers and kill them through uh, blood drain that was a perfect D&D monster because you would line a corridor with ogre and if anyone should just lean on it they got trapped and sucked in they had to make their saving throw otherwise they would have been drained of all their blood and so the players would have to figure out do we want to chop off this guy's hand or whatever so it was pretty grim but the ogre captured my uh, imagination of these walking stones that translated again to D. so the, i think it's another reason why it really resonated for me and then that uh, that switch between parts two and three where we go into hyperspace not only do we have this great a great switch of tone actually i mean it's one of the things i really enjoy about stones of blood is it just kind of pivots immediately to something to in space which is great yeah i would agree because that's to me that's what makes it doctor who because you couldn't do that you couldn't pull that off in any other types of drama that exactly that switch between the hinchcliffe hammer horror of the British Druid Society 
bids and then <laughs> hyperspace that is bonkers and that's kind of the creativity in the williams era and it's one of the reasons i really like david fisher as a writer that for doctor who just that dichotomy of okay we have a very earthbound story you think it's one thing but then right hello it's totally different in the last half it's it's uh it's kind of a a story about a, a an escaped criminal and you have these justice machines and the justice machines are sparkly uh, Vardens, effectively. <laughs> it's the same effect. But, I mean, a lot more successful because they've actually got personalities. Yeah, um, yeah. They're written. Someone's actually bothered to write for them. Yeah. Um, a little bit better. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, again, very, very fond of the Stones of Blood. Um, I mean, the Royal Wright Stones, where it was filmed, I was aware of because, you know, we would go there as a family. So, again, in some ways, actually, that was when we suddenly discover that these particular stones are actually right by the sea, it's like, oh, actually, I know those stones aren't by the sea. So that kind of took me out of the story a little a little bit at, at the time, but I'm, of course, I've kind of forgiven that now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, that, I, I, I just love that change. It's, it's, so, it's so perfectly done. Um, and again, I think at the time and still now, you know, I love the, the kind of idiot, log, the idiot logic of the, of the Megara, which is, you know, kind of perfect. I'm, have they ever come back they're so good i don't know if they've come back in big finish they certainly haven't come back in the primary no well obviously not in the in the main show i wonder if big finish has ever done anything with them because they're 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 just they're such great characters Mm -hmm. enjoyed them very much Mm -hmm. the megara actually reminds me a little bit of benji and frankie mouse and they aren't played by the same actors right but just kind of their um single focusness on, right. Uh, the the mice trying to find the answers to the life universe and everything, and then the Megara, they're focused on one thing, and the the answer is staring them right in their face with the with Vivian Faye of Rose Cottage or whatever <laughs> in there. Yeah, I mean they're very they're very Douglas Adamsy, they're very Douglas Adams characters, but in a good way, mm-hmm. I think. But um, I sorry, I was just looking up on the internet. I don't think they ever have come back. Oh, okay. Maybe they are. Maybe they're. Maybe they I mean, they've not been used by Big Finish. Maybe they're owned by David Fisher, by someone who won't let them be used. Who knows? Hmm. Anyway, I don't know. Yeah. And I think this is the only Doctor Who story that's resolved by the Doctor snatching a necklace from the cleavage of the principal baddie. <laughs> <laughs> yes because it's something you couldn't get away with i think perhaps in 21st century who quite possibly quite possibly <laughs> fine for the 70s though yeah and another great performance uh, a companion who could have been with beatrix layman as uh professor amelia rumsford and for k9 fans i think the combination of rumsford and k9 this proves to me, to be the best story for K9 in the Williams era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he seems more, um, what's the word? Um, useful. Uh, uh, <laughs> useful, yes. There's a reason. There's a re- I mean, even though, I'm mean, obviously, you know, the location filming is, is tricky. Mm-hmm. But yes, no, there's definitely, he's, he has a purpose for a change. Yeah, and it's not just shooty dog thing. He's there to help yeah. instruct the device that's going to get them to and from hyperspace and then he's there to repair the to and from hyperspace and he's there to keep the ogre at bay it's uh, i think fisher finds good uses for k9 
that aren't normally discovered in this in these stories. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that's that's maybe what again at the time I was noticing about K9 is that the creature worked when there was something useful for it to do, but when it was just the doctor's wacky companion happens to be a robot shaped like a dog, it was like, well, right. mm, mm-hmm. didn't care for it hugely. Yeah. Yeah. But this is my favorite. To me, this is the peak of the Kita Time episode 3, Stones of Blood. Uh, the DeVries character obviously gets killed, but it's sort of like here you have all these women all through time playing by Vivian Faye, but then you have this one guy who's the head druid, and how, how did this guy get in charge of this coven, basically? Yeah, though, I mean, I mean, to me, it kind of works because last time I was talking about how disappointed I was with, at the time, with um, Image of the Fendal, mm-hmm. which had a great kind of occult premise um and a kind of von daniken premise and it just all went off a bit half cocked this one i think again it starts out with a cookie cutter uh, occultist human sacrifice thing right but almost and and again that pivot to the to the you know when you actually find out that this you know that she isn't a, an occult leader at all you know she's an escaped criminal from the future mm-hmm. which i guess they've done before but anyway it, it, it just it just kind of they they found something new to do with a rural mm-hmm. kind of group of occultists, and they are thinking about that in a different way, mm-hmm. which is which I appreciate. And also, I think the bit works too with it is that Fisher dispatches him by part two. Yeah, exactly. And so we don't have to have that whole DeVries or we abandon the Druids. We have uh, cleverly, uh, you know, we have two stories here. We have. The mystery of the impersonation of the Kaliak, this Celtic goddess. And then right. the second part, we have the trial, which uh, which maybe isn't as dramatic. It's it's you know it's, it's probably as exciting as Rumpel of the Bailey is for the <laughs> 12 and 13-year-olds. But it is thematically different. It's what we would get, what we would expect to get in the Hinchcliffe Holmes era with a two-part and a four-part story for a six-parter. We have here a two and two. Right. And it works, I think, really well, and I like that split. Yeah, agreed, agreed. In some ways, you know, it kind of points forward to how we do Doctor Who now, which is, you know, kind of shorter and kind of more focused. Mm-hmm. And you had yeah. mentioned, moving on to the Andres Atara, that you thought uh, Prisoner Zendo is more of the BBC serial or the play of the day or Yeah, classic. again, at the time, I felt this was like, oh, this is a, this is a classic serial. Uh-huh. I'm being educated here. I don't watch Doctor Who to be educated. I watch Doctor Who to be entertained. Mm-hmm. And I'm not finding this very entertaining. I want more robots. It's called the Androids of Tara. Where are the androids? Well, they're all duplicates. Um, they're they're not exactly they're not C3PO um, type androids. You did, or even Android Invasion type androids. They're just human replicas. Yeah, and I wanted proper looking androids. Mm-hmm. I didn't want people who just looked like other people. So for me, this worked really well, and I think my one disappointment is that they killed Madame Lamia. Because like with the Hand of Fear where they killed off the, the the pathologist, if they didn't kill off Lamia, this is like, it, it that just ruins the tone of this light, frothy adventure for me. Right. That there's an actual death in there. Because until she gets, even looking past her getting killed, even the villain, Grendel, just takes a swan dive off the side of the castle and into the moat. So it's a story that the key to time isn't even central to it because the Romana finds exactly. the key. 
I like the bit where Tom's just going to say, yeah, you go do it. Uh, you, you'll be fine. Go off and do it. And then he has to be the hero and sword play fits right in yeah. with Star Wars stage fighting. So those are type of things I really liked about the story. And I guess as a young person, it was exciting because we have unexpected turns, like when the Count comes in under a flag of truce and then throws the javelin into the android. So sort of like, this is great. This is perfect. Yeah, again, you know, it's a story that I can enjoy better now Mm -hmm. because I'd seen so much sword fighting and so many castles Mm -hmm. and so many counts and and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in some ways, I also felt that actually we'd had counts and nobility and archaic societies in Rebos operation. And now we were invited to have it again, though instead of being in the studio, it was down at Leeds Castle and was that something you had visited yeah yeah i've mm-hmm. been to leeds castle um which incidentally fact fans is nowhere near leeds <laughs> so don't go to leeds and expect that leeds castle will be there <laughs> but yes i mean it was it seemed to me that they were sort of the same thing and obviously i know that they're not but that yeah, was my that yeah. was behind my kind of discouragement about it at the time well yeah, yeah. i can understand that but i for me castles still haven't seen a castle other than the tower of london right so i haven't really seen a a true british castle so again going with dungeons and dragons these are great because you have uh sword fights you have castles you have right a medieval setting which is kind of a high fantasy uh, setting it's kind of combined with star wars because you have electric swords and crossbows that fly or electrical boats it's all very exciting for a young lad who's playing D and D on Saturdays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I can see, I can see why that would be the case. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Power of Kroll. Did this one do anything for you when you were a kid? I liked it very much. Yeah. And again, it's funny thinking about this season again. Power of Kroll is one that I enjoyed hugely when I was a kid. I enjoy it less so nowadays <laughs> because they waste Maddock. Um, the model work ah. is pretty. <laughs> You know, there's this this kind of. Do you think they? Who's... You really thought they wasted Philip Manic? Yeah, I think I think they did actually. I do, I think I think they. I mean, he's a good enough villain, right. but you know, it's it's Philip Maddock. Yeah, he should be like the head of the villains or something. Well, but Neil McCarthy is so good as Thawn as the deranged leader of them, and now I haven't sorted through all the casting stories, but. I thought with Fenner being played by Philip Maddock as the one survivor of this base. Okay. And then with the Swampies kind of looking at him like, okay, okay, white man. (laughs) At the end, and the Doctor and Romana just hightail it out of there because they got what they came for with the key that was in Kroll. Right. I think it required a character. Maybe, Maybe the story is just... Uh, the general fan consensus is it's a pretty weak story and Philip Maddock was wasted on it. But I think you needed an actor of uh, Maddock's caliber to be able to do those final scenes where he is the counterweight to McCarthy's crazed single-purposeness racism against the Swampies and his capitalistic dreams of mining methane methane, methane from uh, this, this moon of Delta Magna. So he gets a lot of the good lines in there, and I think, I think he does them well, and you wouldn't want a lesser actor doing them. So it, it worked for me, and I, I still really enjoy this story. 
So you, because you, I mean, you've, you've, you've been quite clear about your lack of excitement about Brain of Morbius. Would you put this as a better performance than his performances so on? I think it's a more subtle performance, and certainly he's not a co-star mm. in it. Interesting. I think uh, Maddox is probably better as Solon, in Mahendi Solon in Brain of Morbius, as a role, as a place to shine for an actor. Okay. But his subtlety in performance really comes through hmm. with the power of Kroll, and he is doing a very masterful job acting and making it seem very natural very effortless and i think it's a really hard role to pull off and i think it just shows the talents and maybe he's wasted in this because you know he obviously could have played the role of thon right but i'm not sure you'd want him in that i don't think well maybe maybe you him think, being you think that would be too Similar to maybe to, to you know to the Solon. to the Solon role yeah, perhaps yeah interesting no that's, I mean, that's an interesting take and you wouldn't want him like in, you wouldn't want him okay. all greened up in the John Abernary role as uh, Rankin poor, poor, poor old John yeah. I, I feel sorry for him <laughs> even even to this day I feel sorry for him. I feel sorry for him yeah no 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 I mean that 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 would have been a waste of, of yeah to yeah him, but I mean Abernary is perfect in it yeah 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 huh well you know what I oh, obviously I didn't go and rewatch the entire season mm-hmm. for this one podcast. But this is making me want to go and watch The Power Crawl again. And 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 um, I can't remember when I last watched The Power Crawl, actually. Anyway, and reassess, reassess mm-hmm. some of that received wisdom. My hope is for a season 16 when they do the Blu-ray, if they do a special treatment on it, in, like they've changed with CGI, the giant rat and Wang Chiang, if they do a little CGI tweaking of the horizon with Kroll... And make it a little more natural. Yeah, even I think even at the time, uh, I mean, I think this is this is what I mean by the difficulty of the kind of model work because you know uniformly model work in Doctor Who is, is is excellent, but it's so clear that a they didn't really match the rig model to the landscape right. in any kind of meaningful way, mm-hmm. and they didn't really match the crawl the map right that didn't match very well, and then the crawl's tentacles didn't really match that well to what was happening in the rig. And it, right. I think there was some kind of failure in art direction here where those things could have worked together so beautifully, mm-hmm. but it's okay. Here's the crawl model. Here's the rig model. Here's the tentacle coming into the rig. And they all seem to t- take place. It's a different monster each time, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, hopefully, I mean, certainly, I mean, I doubt they'd replace the, the kind of rig model. Right. But, you know, there must be some kind of tweak yeah. they can do with that horizon line yeah. just to kind of fluff it just to kind of fluff it up a bit. So it's... um More uh, realistic. Quite... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the director, Norman Stewart, I think got really bad advice where he, someone said just, yeah, just mask it off completely rather than just film the blank horizon and then they could fit it in. So right, right, my, right. my hope is that they could do something with CGI or maybe even refilming. I, I don't know what the marshland is. Um, it's down in Suffolk. Um, I don't know what river it is. Snape! I mean, in Suffolk, around the River Aid. It's exactly the same, no doubt, mm-hmm. I would have thought. <laughs> but my guess is you could film it with uh, similar OB cameras and get a new horizon line and then maybe do some video jiggery-pogery magical editing to get a, a different horizon line, and I think it would help it out. What else would you be doing in Season 16? Uh, that would be a good, good one to do the CGI on. If they're going to redo the rat... 
this is definitely top of the list of something just to it, there must be, as you say, there must be something that can yeah. be done to make this look better. And I think it would really sell the gag of this being, you know, the Doctor Who's biggest monster, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, her crawl, crawl is often build. It's often built. Yeah. Yeah. My, yeah. If I had to put my money on, they will do something with the Megara and change the Megara just like they did with the Vardens in the Invasion of Time. Oh, I, like, I, I, I like the Megara. No, the, I, 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 I would argue leave the Megara alone. I think the Megara are fine. I fully concur. I think they work really well as the sparkly disco ball type things that they are. Disco ball monsters, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, key to time off and uh, listening to various podcasts, fan rankings, it's down there in the polls, I have a soft spot for it. I think it's largely due to the location, but it's pretty camp. There are things I would have done differently if I was script editor. Uh, uh, probably the number one thing I would have done is had Romana doing the high-pitched uh, opera note in when they were on the rack being stretched rather than the doctor. That's hard for me to suspend my disbelief. I think it would be much better. But then companions in the Williams era and even earlier... Uh, in Tom Baker's reign, aren't really used well. No, well, as I think, as we said last week, you know, it's you know, it's clear that by the end of end of the key to time, Mary Tam was like, oh, yeah. sod this, I'm off. Yep, yep. <laughs> Have to run around in a swamp and in high heels, scream at a <laughs> scream at someone who isn't very convincing. Yeah, <laughs> must be more convincing from the front. I don't know. <laughs> yep, yep. They promised me I was going to have an interesting character. They don't appear to be able to write an interesting character for me. I'm going to go now, yeah. which is a shame. I, I, Mary Tam is amazing, and she was a, you know, that Romana. I'm a big Romana one, mm-hmm. Stan. I think the the phrases <laughs> nowadays. Um, Indeed, not so much for for Romana two, yeah. as much as one appreciates Lala Ward as an individual. Right. Which brings us to the final segment, the Armageddon factor. Still an interesting story. It did capture my imagination. I like the Marshall. Yeah. I, I like Shap. They've got some great actors there. John Woodvine, who's, you know, who's like a well-known kind of hero of British theatre. Mm-hmm. David Harry's a Shap. But it's a, I mean... Welshman. Yeah, it's a it's a mess. It's too much of it, mm-hmm. really. It's too long. I think it would have been better off if uh, you would have split this into two separate stories, perhaps. Or yeah. the key to time ultimately proves just to be a big MacGuffin. There was really no point that I could ever find or discern why to assemble the key to time in the first place unless it was the Black Guardian at the beginning trying to set this whole thing in the motion, the the Cyril Luckham character. So is that that's a, that's a kind of fan theory thing, isn't I'd, it? Probably, yeah. possibly. I don't know. I'm not, But it's it's just a big MacGuffin. There's really no point for the Doctor to assemble the key to time yeah. that I can see unless the White Guardian managed to work his mojo in the same time that the Black Guardian was trying to get the Doctor to hand off the key to time to him. But that it just seemed like the White Guardian sends the Doctor on this quest and yeah. And then it's done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is disappointing, really. I mean, again, you get some very nice, as you pointed out at the beginning of the cast, some very nice Tom acting mm-hmm. at the end. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really go anywhere because, of course, the Doctor isn't going to become super evil and, like, in charge of time or whatever the key of time gives you. Not really clear. But, yeah, it just returning to my reaction at the time, I found that disappointing. It's like, well, hang on what is this then mm-hmm. and i and i sort of still feel that a little bit now i'm i'm not a big fan of arcs mm. in general i think they're in some ways they're a little bit lazy and i think this 
started a ooh yeah maybe we should do arcs and things mm-hmm. i mean i guess doctor who really didn't do a lot of arcing well we get an after. arc returning in season 18 with the uh e-space trilogy so well there's e-space you get the you Black get turlo yeah. is turlo evil is turlo not evil mm-hmm. actually no one ends up caring about that <laughs> um <laughs> You know, is the Doctor the other, or is the Doctor not the other? Again, everyone just decides that that isn't the thing that, that everyone's the really going to bother about. Virgin Adventures. So yeah, you know, I, arcs. I mean, arcs are difficult, mm-hmm. uh, but they seem easy, and I think that's the problem I have with arcs. And and again, you know, I think the ridiculousness, in my opinion, of some of the arcs of the Moffat years, where an arc is set up and then sort of completely ignored, and then suddenly kind of resolved in the by whipping out something that really wasn't there in the first place mm-hmm. anyway yeah you know it's, 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 as i said in in these kind of this kind of serialized drama arcs seem like a great idea and really easy to pull off i think they're not that they're not that good an idea and i don't think they're that they're that easy to pull off mm-hmm. well i would agree with that i'm not sure that doctor who has really had a satisfying story arc Probably the closest one would be the Bad Wolf arc of the very first uh, return, and which is, is which is satisfying. That is that is well done, mm-hmm. and that's I, I think that's, that's a really light touch arc, even. Yeah, and I think that's the exception that proves the rule for me, arc wise. Yeah. yeah, and this the last series arc was pretty disappointing. I think you have this great setup with uh, the return of the master, and then hmm, timeless children for all the problems that we've talked about previously on the podcast so like you said i agree arcs are really hard and much like many stories it's always the trickiest bit is to stick the landing and the key to time falls short yeah and i think i think the thing with an arc is is it's a story and you need to know how to end it before you start writing it or before you Um, run out of money (laughs) yeah before you run out of money or and you have to rely on Bob Baker and Dave Martin to end it, which is kind of a silly thing to do, because mm-hmm. um, they're obviously going to make you spend too much money by having too many ideas that you can't control, especially if you're not Terrence Dix. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting bit. What if you had the Bristol Boys in just to do a two-parter? Yeah. Kind of a palate cleanser between Kroll <laughs> and your four-part season finale written by Dix. And, you know, Dix would have loved to have written about an Armageddon factor of some kind. You know, he loved like war mm-hmm. and, you know, he could have, you know, he could have brought back the warlords and all that, you know, yeah. those folks. And then Bob Baker and Dave Martin could have had the shadow and uh, the doctor's best friend who we never hear from again or previously. Um, <laughs> can't remember his name, you know, that Drax. One. Drax, that's the one. Um, yeah, that would have worked really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's make that happen. <laughs> Let's get into our time machine mm-hmm. and ensure that that occurs. And the other bit that I was thinking about is the actor who plays the White Guardian. He went on to play um, Edward Drexel in the Omega Factor. Did you ever watch that? Oh, okay. No, I never watched that. Okay. So, but that's where Louise Jameson was. She did right yep. afterwards. Yeah, that's and, where she ended and that up. And that was in yep. the end of the fall, or like June and August. So later in that year, so you could kind of see <laughs> where. How, how everything is tying together. So I don't know. Right. I don't. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. It just. Uh, yeah. It was sad to lose Louise. It, it was great to get Mary Tam on board, but then it's really sad to lose Mary because I could have, I could have seen Mary Tam continuing on if she was given 
something interesting to do. But she, by the time she was playing in Power of Kroll, she was the typical compa- companion screaming when there's really a lame monster type bit. And yeah, you, you yeah. could see why she, like you said, didn't renew. Yeah, and I think it's shame, you know, where Bob Holmes can write better for companions, but it's almost like at that point, scriptwriters of Doctor Who were like, "Oh yeah, the companion's supposed to scream at everything." Yeah. Okay, well then that's what they do then, without actually remembering that in earlier in the seventies with Joe and and Sarah Jane, and I think also you know elements in the sixties as well that actually companions had a lot more to do mm-hmm. than that. But, you know, in some ways, you know, the show sort of suffered a little bit by not having a good memory of itself. I think I've said before, Doctor Who's one of its great strengths is that it doesn't remember itself that well, Mm -hmm. which means it's never burdened by continuity. But that also means that it doesn't really remember. It can forget how it deals with characters. Um, Or Daleks or anything. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think that ill-served both Mary Tam and also Lise Jameson. Mm -hmm. And I think both of them... Uh, I mean, I think I think Louise had a had a good enough run. I think she was just written out really, really badly. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, and Mary, you know, uh, as much as everyone loves Lala Ward, she could have had another season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the responsibility of the missteps in the Key to Time series falls on the script editor uh, Tony Reed, who mm. I think, with a little bit of tweaking here and there, I think the stories could have been a lot stronger than they come across and definitely he wasn't the steadying hand that the bristol boys needed for the conclusion of the armageddon factor like absolutely like the little tweaks and female characters or like with uh, mary tam in the power of kroll and then even with in the stones of blood with her being the damsel in distress hanging off the side of the cliff in the cliffhanger of episode one, I want to say. Uh, these are things that as much as the Williams era is credited with being much better with bringing women into the cast and uh, with supporting cast and the guest cast, it seems a little a little bit of a step backwards from even where Hinchcliffe and Holmes was with, well, we only have one woman on the cast, and that's the companion. We do have other women in the cast, but then we put the companion in kind of the worst light possible, hanging out yep. the side of Cliff or screaming, in Mary's case, screaming with a guy dressed up in green paint impersonating Kroll and not giving her really anything to do. Yeah, which is, I think, you know, it's, it's weird because for all his kind of, you know, unreconstructed presentation of himself as being kind of you know an unreconstructed male i mean terence dix as a script editor you know had a really great touch with just getting and again i've no idea how he actually functioned but you know the companions really worked well under his Mm -hmm. editing um under his editorship and i think also between holmes and hinchcliffe you know obviously it's holmes who's writing the power of crawl here but he doesn't seem to have someone who can Go, you know, Bob, we've really got to change that because, right. you know, this character isn't really behaving the way this character should. And I think if you've got strong personalities or, you know, particular ways of writing, uh, you've got to have a strong script editor there to, to and who understands, you know, has a better, and I've said I don't like arcs, but, you know, someone like Terrence mm-hmm. Dix had a good understand of the arc of character. Um, not an arc of plot. And that's where the kind of early 70s work so well for me. Mm -hmm. That's why you're relying on the script editor to 
rein in the excesses of the writers and especially when it when the characterization either of the doctor or the companion is wrong and the romana character is an invention of williams and reed and they aren't as protective of that character as hinchcliffe and holmes were early on of leela and right so you see the mistakes the fumbles that Williams and Reed made with the Leela character. Just she's a sex symbol and skins. They won't believe that Jameson wants to leave, so we'll just marry her off in the last act of Invasion of Time. You have the same betrayal of character in Romana 1 that is perpetuated by the same production team of Reed and Williams. And I think that's where... Uh, despite all the creativity and the money troubles that they have, if they were more true to a vision of these companions, what their character was, their era would have been much stronger despite the lack of money. Though, of course, I mean, again, I mean, if we're, we're, we're casting them a little bit as more obviously less interested in women characters than earlier script editors or early production teams. They go from the from the kind of sexy girl in, you know, leather underwear to a, you know, which is one sexist stereotype mm-hmm. um, to another one, which is the kind of ice queen, mm-hmm. the kind of dominatrix character that Romana first starts out as being. And then they realize they can't really do anything with that. Mm-hmm. And then she just then falls into this just kind of what they apparently believe is what is what the, you know, is what the companion does, which is just stand around screaming at things. Mm-hmm. Who girl? I, you know, I just don't think they really understand how to write for female characters mm-hmm. or how to script edit for, for, for female characters at all. Well, you have good female characters throughout this era or uh, throughout the key of the time, especially with the David Fisher scripts with uh, Vivian Fay and yep. uh, Amelia Rumsford and then Madame Lamia, and her relationship with Grendel and Androids of Tara, I think, are really good characters. Where you have much weaker characters, it's Bob Holm. It's the old guard writers. You just have the witch in uh, Rebos Operation. And then in Power and Kroll, there is absolutely no women. And the only other woman this season is Lala Ward as Princess Astra with the Bristol Boys. And... Mary Tam was not done a great service, I guess, in, the, in, nope. in, in nope. this. So. I think I think that's our conclusion, yeah. and I think it is a correct one. But the stories themselves really captured my young imagination, and uh, the Williams era of season sixteen, especially those middle four stories, are if I want just something on on a rainy day here in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> uh, Doctor Who, that those are ones that I would go, or late night, I just want Doctor Who on in the background. It would be something from this season. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, well, no, clear. Anyways, uh, you got a quiz tomorrow. Oh, yeah, I have got the quiz tomorrow. I keep forgetting that. Quiz of Rassilon. What time, your time is uh, it? I think it's 10.30 again. Okay. So 6.30, 6.30 British time. That's not too harsh. Yeah, I need to, um, I need to refresh myself on, I need to do that tonight, is work out what the... Think about some likely questions. The return of the much-feared Toby Haddock. <laughs> the Eliminator round. The Eliminator. They call him the Eliminator. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. The Slayer. Yeah. It's been a the month since, since, since we last did the last one, so I 
I feel a little bit out of practice, but we'll see how it goes. The Ford Zoomstay team intact, all four of you back? I think so. Um, we may, uh, we may unfortunately lose our Jamie expert, Lena, halfway through because she, she has another appointment. So again, mm. we will have mm-hmm. to see whether Brian and Jess and I can, can hold the fort and mm-hmm. regain that top spot, that ever-elusive top spot. Any stories that you had to review this week? Uh, survival. Ah, that's a great one. Yeah, I know. I love survival now. I didn't yeah. like it at all. And now I... I, I it's, it's the best of it's, the McCoy era. It's pretty much <laughs> the top of the McCoy era. So that was no no chore at all to rewatch that one. Oh, good. Well, I wish you wish you well. We'll, well find out. Find out the results before this podcast is released, but uh, hopefully you, you four will do well. Well, let's, let us hope so, yes. All right. Good. So I think that's it from the Metabilis 2 on season 16. I think it is. Key All to right. time. Yeah. Black Guardian and White Guardian. Well, thank you for listening to the Metabulous 2 podcast, episode 169. I've been rolling around in green makeup, chanting Kroll, Kroll, Kroll to Ben. And I've been cowering behind the sofa at the sight of the Taran Wood Beast with David. <laughs> Until next time on the Metabulous 2 podcast. Goodbye. Farewell. Farewell.